You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. Topic today is New Orleans, and with me is uh, someone who knows a whole lot about it, uh, Mark Romy, who's the chief marketing officer for New Orleans and Company, which is the marketing agency uh, to get people to to come to New Orleans. Thank you very much, uh, Mark. Mark, this being New Orleans related, if, if this if happens in New Orleans, we have a tradition, and our tradition is we always start off with a song. So we're going to play just a little bit of a song. Okay, uh, see if you can identify it. It's fairly easy. Okay, and okay. if you can identify it and identify the artist and identify the historical significance, you'll win $5,000, uh, providing we can have a successful GoFundMe campaign. Uh, <laughs> you, okay. Otherwise, we'll just give you a, a nice warm thank you. All right, so here's the song. Okay. <laughs> Okay, any idea what that is? Oh, Errol, you have me stumped on this one. It sounds, uh, obviously, it's an old recording, um, and uh, it, it's music to my ears, but I cannot, I cannot name that tune. Okay, well, I'll admit that's kind of tough, all right? That is the Livery Stable Blues, <laughs> which was recorded by the original Dixieland jazz band. They called it JSS at the time, jazz band, headed by Nick LaRocca. And the significance uh, of that song is that that is uh, said to be the first commercially recorded jazz record. And so in 1917, the band went to New York and they recorded that. And so that was really the beginning of, uh, of the popular consumption of jazz once there was a record that was made. And the side story is if you listen to it, it's kind of fast paced. If you've heard the same band play the same song in the parlor, it would have been slower paced. But what happened is that the recordings of the time tend to make the songs faster. Uh, and so as the recordings went out and other bands heard the song that they played it like they heard it on the record. And so the recording actually made jazz faster, uh, um, you know, just because of that. But anyway, that was the whole beginning of the jazz thing. So, Well, thank you for sharing. And uh, <laughs> it's interesting that we start with music because one of our major emphasis in our marketing campaign over the last year has been the music of New Orleans and how we have got so many different genres of music that have come through this city and out of the city. And we're going to hear a little bit more about the music, but, but, but you're right. I got to tell you for all of these, um, these podcasts, I try to get some music indigenous to the area. And for most places, maybe it's one or two songs, but New Orleans is just like overwhelming and in so many different genres. But we're, we're going to talk some more about that. First, let's start maybe kind of humping down here. How do things look? Are we going to make it? Yeah, we will make this. Uh, we'll, we'll get through this. Uh, you know, there's a saying that's been often repeated that uh, every 
storm runs out of rain eventually and and we'll this virus will will settle down at some point and we'll get to a vaccine or we'll get to a point where uh, uh, we uh, can be back to somewhat uh, normal um, operations as a, uh, as a humanity. But, uh, but my optimism is there and I believe we've got the right uh, mindset to see through this. So yes, I'm, I'm looking forward. It may take us a few years, but we will get through this. But the, um, of course, the Katrina, we were hit hard, but there was always other places to go. Well, there were other places that weren't hit by. This is, this is global, uh, which I guess as far as the strategy is both good and bad in terms of our survival. There's no place for other people to escape to. Yeah, that's the interesting point about this. That, like you said, for Katrina, the Calvary came to our rescue from around the world. Uh, we had visitors coming here to uh, participate in in volunteer activities, uh, all the while also trying to enjoy you know, the greatness that we have here in our part of the world. Um, but now everyone's having to come to their own rescue. Uh, and uh, we're seeing ourselves adapt in so many different ways on how we now engage with people and what, what our socialization looks like. You know, hospitality is all about socialization. So the hospitality industry around the world uh, has got to look at this uh, and see how they're going to adapt because people will always want to socialize. And I think we need to rise to the occasion and work that uh, in a way that is safe and, and responsible. But uh, we will continue um, socializing. That's not going to stop. I remember during, I guess, a month or so after Katrina, being home one Saturday, working on a house. And of course, all the restaurants were closed anywhere around. And this truck comes by, and there's this guy with the Red Cross offering lunch. And truth is, we knew we needed lunch. There wasn't any place to go. So I said, sure. And I was thinking, boy, this is where my life is going right now. I'm being by the Red Cross. And um, and he said, go to the side window and pick what you want. Well, what they have, what do you have? Well, we got rice and we got beans. Well, I think I'll have rice and beans. But, but, but yeah, that was um, the way life changed, but it certainly built back. The one thing about New Orleans, it, 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 it just seems to be so much more savable. I mean, there are so many good things here, even with the tourism. I mean, the tourism here is really genuine stuff. I mean, there's some people, everybody tries to have a little bit of tourism, but we have really something genuine to offer that I think people really want to come back to. You're right. We've got what people want to participate in and be part of. Uh, our visitor is is always been categorized as the experiential discoverer. It's the person who wants to really become a local when they're here. They want to go and eat where we eat. They want to shop where we shop. They want to listen to music where we listen to music. They want to get out and, and explore uh, the various neighborhoods. And I think uh, not many cities can offer that unique uh, opportunity for visitors. And we do it in such a, a grand way because of the people who live here and work here are such hospitable people. And uh, I, I think people relate to friendliness. And that's been our hallmark uh, for decades. And and it'll always be our hallmark. And even to just walk through the quarter now, which is a little sad because it's so, so empty, but, but it, within that, you see how much, how great it is. I mean, you see all the architecture and the and to drive down by the river. I mean, just to go and sit on a bench and look at the Mississippi River is a big deal. And uh, I don't know, there's just so much to offer here. So I, I see we have you more legs. But but I think one lesson that gets to this is there's always people who criticize tourism. It's not tourism, you know, it's just a, a cheap imitation. It's not the real thing. But you really see how important that tourism is 
to this era? Well, yeah, it certainly has uh, shown its uh, worth and importance uh, to our not only our city's uh, revenue uh, for the city of New Orleans, uh, but also to the, the many jobs and livelihoods that are, are uh, depending on this part of our economy coming back. You know, none of us want to have all of our eggs in one basket, and we do need to diversify our economy. Um, we do need to have a, a larger tech uh, portion, and um, you know, the port plays a big role, of course, in education and healthcare. But you know, there's a lot more types of industries that we should be getting here. And I know GNO Inc. and the Chamber and NOLA BA have been working uh, overtime to do that. But in the meantime, we have what we have, and those are wonderful uh, tourism assets. Uh, we have uh, a culture like no other city in the world. We have uh, people who have given their lives uh, to ensure that uh, we have a sense of, of diversity here and inclusion. Uh, and I, I just believe um, we, we will play a part in bringing this economy back. Tourism and the tourism spend, we'd rather it come here than go to Charleston or Nashville or Austin. And our role, our, our most important role as a destination marketing organization is to message and communicate and sell that proposition to people, whether they're groups, conventions, associations, or individual visitors to come here. Now we need to do it within the guise of, of a safety message, which is important because the visitor is looking for wanting to get out. They do want to get out. They want to socialize, but they want to do it in a safe environment. And so uh, our hotels, our attractions, our restaurants are are doing everything that they can do to provide that safe environment for the consumer. You know, whenever I see surveys, mostly like readers surveys done by magazines of most popular cities and most popular destinations, New Orleans is always right up there, but it seems like a really close competitor is always Charleston. Charleston always seems to, to be the number one. It reminds me of that old Avis and Hertz commercial <laughs> where Avis was, you know, number, number two, but you know, they're fighting to be number one. Not to take anything away from Charleston, it's a beautiful city. It's uh, lots of rich history. Uh, it, it has the architecture, it has the museums, it has the uh, the beautiful parks and gardens. It doesn't have as many of the restaurants like we do, uh, but they seem to to uh, always seem to come up there to the top of the list. But you know, we always fight above our um, our weight class. Uh, we we have so much to offer, and we we believe that. Uh, when you can compare everything that we have against any other city that hands down New Orleans uh, wins that. Well, I think one advantage might be, I tried to figure out one day, well, what, what, what do they have that we don't? And they're close to the ocean, um, that, that there's an ocean right by, whereas we're not. I mean, we're not close to the, the Gulf, you know. Um, but also they're on the East Coast, and so they get a lot of the East Coast travelers. And so when you do those surveys, uh, mm -hmm. that helps too. Yeah, they're right off a major interstate system that runs from Miami all the way up to, um, you know, Boston. Um, so uh, it's it's accessible to your point. The, but uh, it's always good to have somebody that you can compete with and, you know, uh, keep you on your toes, as they say. Absolutely. Uh, but what they don't have is an NFL team. Um, we do our Mardi Gras. They don't have Mardi Gras. Yeah, either. we're going to talk about those. But let me tell you, the um, we're going to. Um, well, your unique role with the Saints, of course, is that you're the, uh, the field announcer. And after a while, I'm going to ask you to do a certain uh, <laughs> response that you do. But uh, um, what's it going to be like 
with the virtual with the games with nobody there, are you going to still be be announcing the plays? Yeah, well, as you know, uh, as it, as it stands now, uh, it looks like the, the the fans will be outside of the stadium um, to uh, go along with the current restrictions that we have in place. Uh, those, you know, you never know; those may change as we get into the season further. Uh, but as it stands now, we'll still be uh, calling the plays inside the stadium, uh, doing the stadium announcing. You'll have the radio uh, team doing the radio broadcast uh, so that we can create, uh, help create a sense of, of, um, of excitement and the stadium, stadium ambiance that you would get. Um, it's going to be interesting because I've, I've tested the microphone at the stadium prior to the fans getting in on a regular game day. Uh, and it's a different sound without all those people in the seats. So we're going to have to, you know, modulate a little bit there and uh, and play it out. But uh, I will be calling the play-by-play inside the stadium uh, along with uh, the house controls team there. So um, we'll be there to support the team and to do whatever the Saints have asked us to do to ensure that um, we can get um, a season underway and uh, do it appropriately and responsibly. In the first two games that – there won't be any fans. Tom Brady, you know, returning uh, this with Tampa Bay, and then the, and then a couple of weeks later, Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay. So they got two very very high profile games, and and they would have been they would have double sold out those games. Yeah, I think uh, certainly the the uh, the excitement for this season has been growing since the uh, teams were announced that we would be playing at home, and my my sense is this team is. Uh, going to be ready to go uh, from from the day one, and uh, it's going to be an exciting several uh, weeks leading into hopefully postseason play and 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 beyond. Uh, but you think we it's certainly. Go ahead. I was going to say we certainly have some marquee players that will be inside yeah. the Dome this year. you think there's a possibility that later in the season they can start letting fans? You know, that's going to depend on where we are with the phasing. You know, we're still uh, in the, the uh, restrictive phase, and it's all going to be driven by what's the safest thing to do to keep everyone safe, not only the team members but also the fans. Because, as you know, we are the most boisterous of fans. We don't hold back our emotions um, and, and it's hard to do with masks on, but, you know, I think masks are going to be with us uh, for the foreseeable future. So we'll just have to, again, adapt as we've been adapting since mid-March when we went into this. Uh, I think that's really the strength of, of, of what we've seen with people is that uh, they have done what they need to do, particularly in the New Orleans area. You know, we've seen some uh, recently good numbers and uh, we're hoping that we continue to improve and get to the other side of these restrictions. Have you gotten over the no call yet? <laughs> Boy, that is something uh, that will live with me and so many other people uh, because I, I was, I was ready to call that, that flag, you know, cause if there's a flag on the play, you will hear me say um, there's a flag on the play. Uh, and I was, my, my mouth was almost like mouthing the words, but I, I wasn't going to say anything until we saw that what the referee was going to do. Um, and we were looking for him to pull that flag up and, and throw it. So yeah, it's, it, it was an interesting, um, interesting ending of that game. Uh, interesting. Uh, and I say interesting because my emotions, I, I still feel the pain that we all felt when we left the stadium that day, we were just scratching our heads saying, what, what just happened? And of course we know what, 
um, you know, how it all came down after that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, that was, that's only made up by the, uh, the fact that I was there on um, that September night in 2006 when the, the, we uh, blocked the punt of the Atlanta Falcons by Steve Gleason and, and that ball was run into the end zone uh, for the touchdown. And I can still feel the chills that come out of that. So when I'm feeling bad about the no call, I think back to the opening of the, st- of the stadium in 2006. And that makes me feel so much better. With a magic moment that block one would have, and who knew, who knew the way that would play out over the years with the whole Steve Gleason. Yeah. And the whole. Metaphor. He's such a, such a wonderful role model. And he, yeah. now there's somebody that, you know, the no white flags attitude, and that's what we're all, that's what we're all going to now with, uh, with COVID-19 as we did with Katrina. Um, you know, just look at what Steve Gleason has uh, fought through and what he's done and how uh, such a great role model he's been for not giving up. And I think that's, that's what we need to uh, take from him on this journey well, that we all well, share. The no call thing I've, I've completely forgotten about. I don't even remember that the guy's name was Gary Cavalletto and that he lived right outside of Los Angeles and his family is in the insurance business. I've forgotten all of that by now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> okay. um, so we get back to the Saints a little bit. Actually, we have another song. Okay. And uh, the, re- the reason I want to play this is because when people talk about Mardi Gras in New Orleans, a lot of, a lot of places have Mardi Gras. Or, or they have they have a parade. That's as a parade, you know, like the Rotary Club or somebody will organize a parade. Ours is just so deep in culture from so many different directions. You can never really imitate what we um, what, what we have in New Orleans. And I hope people realize this. Uh, I hear rumors that there's a, a city official who's not a big fan of Mardi Gras, and I hope this person can learn more about it and learn how deep it goes. But anyway, this is a. Um, uh, a brief segment from me, and you don't need to identify. I'll tell you what it is. But anyway, Good. from uh, from uh, from the Mardi Gras Indians. Wild Magnolia. That's Wild Magnolia. That's, that's very good. Okay. Now, yeah. um, the original version, I think, was by the Wild Chapatulas, and somehow the Wild Magnolia does it too. So I don't know uh-huh. if the story is there. By the way, how wild can a magnolia be? Okay. Uh, only in only in New Orleans can they be wild. And yeah, and and, and the performer is uh, Bo Dallas. Oh yeah. Famous with those Mardi Gras songs, and who yeah. at one time became a a big chief. But from what I can glean from this is that. When they're talking about meet me now on the battleground, what they were talking—I I guess in the early days of the Mardi Gras, there were times when there'd actually be be fights. But but ultimately, what happened is that the tribes would unite and compete with each other in terms of showing off their costumes and their dancing. And so th- that was the battleground, and that's what the spy boy was all about—you know, to go ahead and, and 
and to um, and, 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 and to spot another tribal pro so they can kind of uh, show off to each other. But a line from this is that the uh, um, maybe down the battleground where the wild magnolia is going to stomp some rump. And that right there sounds pretty violent. But anyway, but the prettiest thing I ever seen is the Mardi Gras Indians down in New Orleans. He sewed all night and sewed all day. Mardi Gras morning went all the way. And so what they're talking about is a product of their of these men sitting around and sewing their costumes. Yeah. So the next day they can go in and show them off, and that's the battleground. But man, look at how, how deep that is. I it's mean, so wonderful. You know, we went through our tricentennial. Um, and I had a sort of a, a, a close-in view of the whole process, having doing some volunteer work for the Tricentennial Foundation. Uh, and look, I'm as a white guy, I you know I, I didn't know my history as well as I should have, and I learned so much as we got through the Tricentennial and the Black Mardi Gras Indian tribes and the work that they do year in and year out. And those suits are worn, uh, and then they start over again and they rebuild and they're teaching generations and generations to do this and it's it's such a uh important piece of of the history of our area that everyone needs to understand and and, and know and respect and, and appreciate and help support um and it's one of those things that as we look forward to future mardi gras particularly as we look forward to 2021 you know you just hope and pray that we're able to do this appropriately and safely but again we've got to do it the right way there's a there's an exhibit going on in New Orleans and it's, it's called the Jam Nola. Uh, yes, yes, it's, brand it's, new. Yeah, and it's really really good, and it's located right next to um, the Noka, and people can go in and I mean the, they kind of distance people, but a lot of it is given to that culture right there. And there's exhibits about like the um, uh, some of the great things like the the, the skull and bones gangs. Uh, they, yes, it's to dress like skeletons and go around on. On Mardi, Mardi, Gras, Mardi Gras morning, right? right They're right. over 200 years old in that tradition. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and, and the baby dolls. And all, that. and all of that is something that just really kind of developed independent of it. I mean, it is a black Mardi Gras. I mean, that's the people who participate in it. Um, and it probably all exists because I think the, the parades give Carnival its attention and probably give it its financial base and, and make it justified for the city to spend money on it. But it allows all these other things to exist that just developed independently, and I just think it's so good. And and, and the music of the uh, the Indians is uh, sort of a combination of uh, Afro Caribbean, and and it's, it's it's really good. And you know, it used to be the Indians were very very private. Uh, they would just go and walk around their own neighborhood on Mardi Gras morning, so very few people outside the neighborhood got to see them. But in the last few years, with the Jazz Fest, the Jazz Fest has given them a stay. And they've gotten a little bit more public, so I think people are becoming a little more familiar with them. Yeah, I, I my sense is that, um, you know, we have, and again, it's it's important for us to um, make sure that we're investing properly and giving support to these culture bearers and the people who are carrying the culture of our of our community forward, um, because it, that's why people come to New Orleans. They they're not coming to New Orleans to sit by a pool and read a book. They they're coming to be infused with this this deep, authentic, unique culture that we we have here, and um, the cultural expressions like what the Black Mardi Gras Indians have done with the Skull and Bones Gang uh, for uh, two centuries, more than two centuries, have been doing. Um, so uh, it, that's an important lesson that I think we've all taken away, and we all need to to learn more about our own culture. Here's quickly my theory on the birth of modern tourism in New Orleans. 
And again, it's my theory, so who knows? All right, but it's, uh, I think you can pinpoint 1964 and the passage of the Civil Rights Act. Once that passed, there were a lot of national chains that never went into the South that once the Civil Rights Act was passed, they started coming in. So we had the Hilton and the Sheraton, we had those big chains coming in. Once they were there, they have these huge bases, they have this of, of customers that they bring in, they bring in a lot of money, and they really began funding tourism. Um, and also this more, more reliance on the hotel tax. With the hotel tax, then you can start building things, finance like the Superdome and the convention center. And then with that, things spiral, even Mardi Gras. I mean, like you wouldn't have had Bacchus had you not had a river gate, or, or you wouldn't have had these, these big things had you not had the convention center. And of course, where would, where would we have the Superdome? So I think that that created a spiral uh, that we really grew from. And then of course, these things allow the smaller things out there to survive too. So yeah, you know, it's interesting after uh, you and I both uh, went through the World's Fair together. Um, and I think that was a, a, a pivotal moment in uh, the way we would express ourselves as a city and an industry uh, to come forward and uh, put a lot of stock in uh, tourism. Uh, you know, towards the end of the 70s and into the early 80s, uh, I think a lot of our city leadership at the time and uh, industry leadership saw the opportunity to really expand on New Orleans being a, a place people wanted to come to. And uh, then the oil and gas uh, bust that occurred in the late 80s uh, gave us even more of an impetus to put more and more of our stock into creating that opportunity for people to come here and meet and do the conventions and then build out our assets. And you see what's happened with our restaurant explosion over the last several years and um, attractions like the National World War II Museum. So um, in, a, in a way, we went into this with our eyes wide open, but at the same time, we still need to diversify the economy if we're going to have a sustainable environment for all of us to live and work. All right. Very good. Thank you. Okay. Now we come to the highlight of our show. We call on our executive producer, Kelly Massico, for a segment we call This and That, okay, in which she asks questions and we just say, it's kind of like, well, you'll see. Uh, Kelly, come on in. All right. So we have a few, a few good ones here. Um, we're going to start out, and I think I already know the answer for both of you, but um so saints versus pelicans saints. i would call it a tie <laughs> yeah well, um, yeah because really i work for the saints organization which is the saints pelicans organization and i love them both i do work you know my day job uh the game day job is with the saints but maybe the saints have a little bit of an edge but man how about breeze zion williamson how about the breeze and yeah. zion that's a that's a toss-up <laughs> yeah well in fairness the saints were born here. I mean, they've been here longer. They were a franchise. And so there are more people that have a long-term attachment, attachment with the Saints. But and, and, and the basketball team has had a lot of bad luck, too. So, I mean, I mean, I mean with the, the thing about having to leave town a few years, Katrina, and, and, and even this year is kind of tough. But, but they've had some good luck, too, in terms of drawing people. So I think there's a possibility that the basketball team is going to achieve immense popularity. Um, and, and at first, I wasn't sure if it was a good idea having the same ownership for the football team and the basketball team. But now I think it is. I think they can kind of work together. There's no rivalry between the two. So I think that's good. Yeah. I, you know, again, my dad was with the Saints organization for uh, 44 years, never missed a, a game while he was announcing 446 consecutive games. My brother Jay works for the Saints on a full time basis. My sister spots for me. Uh, and she spotted for dad, and this will be my eighth year 
in the House Controls booth announcing. So uh, maybe I do need to put my weight a little bit more toward the Saints. <laughs> but we all love the, the Pelicans. So, so. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right. Um, Jazz Fest versus French Quarter Fest. I, man, these are so tough for me. You know, I promote both of them on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. Again, go to both. They're wonderful. Yeah. And they both have... Well, the thing about the French Quarter Fest is that it's free. I mean, I mean there's no admission, so anybody can, can go there. And there's uh, the, the Jazz Fest is 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 ticketed, but the um, but the Jazz Fest is it's over a couple of weekends, and so that's bigger. I think the Jazz Fest probably has more long-term impact, but French Quarter Fest is good too. Yeah. All right. And we're looking for both of them to come back next year. Oh yeah. Please. <laughs> um, Beignets versus Bananas Foster. Hmm. I love ice cream, so I'm going to go Bananas Foster. I think I'll go ahead with that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I'll, I won't turn down a, a beignet, and I've had many of them over my years. But you know, I'm it's this. You know, we're thinking about uh, oh, ice cream is so good, especially when the waiter puts on a show. You know, with the flaming, the everything, and all that. It's always better with a show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Antoine's versus Galatoire's. Once again, you put me in a fault, bad spot here. <laughs> I like them both. They both have such great history, um, you know, and they they have been leaders in uh, showing some uh, wonderful cuisine to the rest of the world. So um, I'd say uh, it's a two night stay in New Orleans. One night you're at Antoine's. One night you're at Galatoire's. One night you're at Arno's. One night you're at Brennan's. So I can give you the whole list. They're just all fantastic. Now, the Bananas Fosters started at Antoine's, I believe. Okay. Um, the Galatoire has done some things too. They're a goatee thing and all that. And so they're, they're really good. Um, as far as the building, one thing that's kind of neat about the Antoine's is I love those rooms in the back. They all kind of have different levels of history. In I know so much history there, you know, it, it, I, and you, you and I have enjoyed several great lunches in that Rex room too. The, over the, the, years. the Rex room, it's an important yeah. place in New Orleans. So anyway, but they, yeah, they're both great places. Yeah. The massacres are a Galatoire's family. So okay. oh, they all right. We got <laughs> Tommy Mandina, whose family owns Mandina's, several years ago told me that when they were kids, I think it was like every Tuesday night, the Mandina's family would take the streetcar and go to Galatoire's. Yeah. And they really learned some, a lot of their cooking technique and dishes from going to Galatoire's. Yeah, my great grandfather is in the original guest book. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, okay. Uh, so, Endymion versus Bacchus. Man. Again, I you know I need to take a pass on on these things. Yeah. Uh, that this is a tough one because uh, I could name it as Errol knows another organization that I would want to put in there as well. Um, they're also good, um, and they've all played such an important role in bringing uh, Mardi Gras to the people. Of course, you've got Rex as the king of carnival, uh, leading the way, and and Zulu has done such tremendous things over the last several years to anchor that Mardi Gras morning as they do. Uh, and, you know, it's been interesting, Errol, is the partnership that Rex and Zulu have uh, have established together over the last several years in working in the community and providing support for uh, organizations. So uh, that's a that's a good role model for all of us. And also Zulu and Rex meeting at Lindy Grove, which I think is really. A well, the Lindy Grove, which you uh, helped create, uh, has become, uh, you know, up there with the most sought after event to attend. Um, 
for the community. Mm-hmm. And it's it's got so much history in itself, and you, you know that better than anyone. Yeah. I'll say this about Endymion versus Bacchus. Bacchus gets credit for being first. I mean, I mean, Bacchus started the whole super crew thing. Endymion, from a personal perspective, is the only parade that goes down Canal Street now, where it's everything else down to Charlie. And there's somebody who lives along Canal Street, that's a big deal. I mean, that's about a three-day festival, having Endymion uh, pass down Canal Street. And so I, I appreciate them both for different things. Bacchus for being first and saying the model, Endymion for bringing its power and prestige to that part of town. Agreed. <laughs> okay. okay, these are a little less controversial. Um, well, I think. Uh, <laughs> City Park versus Audubon Park. Well, i got to say, I, I know from inside information here that both Mark and I have been on the board of City Park. And I'm on the board at Audubon now. So, yeah. <laughs> got to... so anyway. Yeah, <laughs> equal opportunity there. Uh, again, they both play their own unique roles in our community. You know, Audubon certainly has such wonderful history as the site of the 1884 Cotton Exposition and City Park being uh, uh, a park that uh, has truly not just a city park, it is is a regional park. It it pulls in people from all over the uh, this part of Louisiana and Mississippi to enjoy uh, the, the great golf there and all the great attractions. And Errol's dad uh, was synonymous with City Park for so many years. And of course, Lavin Park is a zoo, and, and, you know, and a, a, a very important zoo. So, so yeah, they both play their roles. It's like Bacchus and Endymion, you know, so. Okay, and the last one, crawfish season versus football season. Well, my mother says there's only two seasons in the world it's waiting for the saints season and the saints season so i'm gonna go with saints <laughs> yep, I agree. yeah it's, it's, i i i miss those sunday afternoons kind of uh dominated by the saints games yeah yeah but i'm not going to turn down a, a platter of crawfish either no so. no no, no. Uh-huh. not at all so anyway okay just a couple more uh, items here one more song and let's do this. And this is this this is easy. All right. Armstrong. Yeah. Well, I still get uh, of course, it's Louis Armstrong, who's, uh, I think, the, the, the biggest celebrity to have come out of New Orleans, uh, certainly in jazz, but probably, I guess, in, in the whole genre. And, you know, back then, the, the big thing about Basin Street, it was, it, it had its day when it was sort of like the route to Storyville. I mean, that was the main thing, and I think that's why it got so much attention. I, uh, if if people come to New Orleans now and they've heard about Basin Street and they see it, it's, it's not much to it right now. And I know that there's been efforts to try to do more, and and maybe it's going to happen. I, I think that, you know it'd be nice if they had a little bit more activity along Basin Street, but it's a great it's a great piece of music. And yes, so- it's 
and it's one of those ones that immediately draws you to the special nature of our city in such a such a uh, heartfelt way. All right. Okay. So, in your role as the announcer for the Saints, okay, the situation, the Saints are like forty yards away from the goal line. Okay. Drew, Drew Brees gets the ball. He backs up. He sees a receiver running down the field right about the five-yard line. He passes. He connects. And what do we hear? If he, Does he score? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Touchdown, Saints! <laughs> and, and then we hear that many, many times. And by the way, I don't know if you know this. But and I probably said something like uh, Breeze to Thomas for the score. <laughs> yeah, my iPhone has like the Saints app on it. And so, like, during the season, if I'm not at a Saints game, all of a sudden I'll be walking somewhere. You know, it could be anywhere in the country. You know, all of a sudden your voice comes from my pocket. Um, saying, <laughs> so, um, so it goes a little. Mark, thank you very much. It's um, been delightful talking to you. Uh, Pleasure, Errol. I know and, Kel- and Kelly, thank you for those tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're all in this together, but at least, at least we're together. <laughs> I guess that's the main thing. That's right. That's yeah. right. Well, Errol, thank you for what you do in our community to uh, bring history alive for us um, each and every day. And uh, and I look forward to working with you at Mardi Gras again. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.